You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Dr. Gosine, a professor of environmental arts and justice at York University in Toronto. His publications include co-authorship of the text Environmental Justice and Racism in Canada and contributions to many journals including Small Acts, Wasafiri, Sexualities, Topia, Caribbean Review of Gender Studies, Art in America, as well as scholarly anthologies. His artwork has been exhibited internationally at various galleries and museums, and he most recently curated the critically acclaimed exhibition Everything Slackens in Iraq at the Ford Foundation Gallery in New York. In this discussion, we talk about his newest book, Nature's Wild, Love, Sex and Law in the Caribbean. So we're here today with Dr. Gosine. <laughs> Thank you for joining. Uh, before we start talking about um, your book, I wanted to ask you the origins of this project, a sort of invitation to narrate us um, into the project, how you came into it, what sort of concerns personal, ethical, philosophical that drew you to the questions in Nature's Wild. So why this project and why now? I sort of fell into doing it. It it wasn't, it was something I felt compelled to write at the moment I wrote it. Um, As I'm as sure is evident from its autobiographical tone, it's an expression of very specific political and ethical commitments that feel very urgent to me. Um, And so the questions and tensions that I explore in the book emerge from a search for social environmental justice. And that's characterized my whole existence. Like from very young, I remember being 10 near, I was actually not quite 10, I was probably around eight years old when I went to a meeting of sugarcane workers who had lost their jobs in the area I had been and a politician had come. And I was sort of mesmerized by political and became very aware of issues of justice. So that's always characterized all of my work. I remember going to that meeting with my dad and then from the next day would read the newspapers every day. So that in general has always driven me. Um, But I think with this book at an older age, I'm also contending with myself, like trying to make sense of myself which is a project that necessitates looking at our social history. You, you know, those two are not divorceable. So to understand my own anxieties, my pleasures, my fears, uh, I have to understand the production of the social present. Like how, are, how I am now has to ask the question, how are we here now? So those the two things have always been entwined. And I turned toward animality, or what I call animality in the book, but could easily be called, uh, uh, you know, a kind of primary concern with desire, 
because I think it's an under-considered aspect of our history in the Americas in particular. That line between human and non-human animal has underpinned and driven so much of the violence that has produced and which continues to produce mm -hmm. the Americas from the evisceration of indigenous people because they were less than human to the enslavement of African peoples because it's again premised on the idea that they are closer to animal than human. You know, these are very, very, it's a very key tenant of of the evolution of the last 500 years here. And it's not something I think that is taken up. So I felt like there were desire was this um, connection between the social history and my own unpacking of myself and added to it was this special urgency of the time we're living in, which is, you know, a moment of global ecological crisis. There's something a bit more material even to be thinking about what does it mean to consider ourselves animal or, or not animal at a moment of disappearance of so many species that we depend on to live, you know? So those are like, so on one hand, it's a very long concern. And then the other, the other part, a long set of concerns that are not a deviation from say, I would say all of, almost all of my life, but also it's in this moment they felt particularly urgent. Thanks so much for sharing that. And again, the urgency of this, this discussion, the human-animal divide. I was actually just talking to my colleagues about that, and they were so interested in this topic. So thanks so much for sharing that. Um, can you talk a bit about the nexus between race, class, gender, and sexuality in the human-animal divide? Sure. So that dividing line between human and non-human um, non animals and anxieties about animality, you know, that the, the amount of energy we put into declaring ourselves not animal have been harnessed in the formulation of racist, gendered, homophobic, and class narratives that uphold the related intersecting forms of oppression, and often ways that are not evident. So, you know, for example, I mean, Keisha coming from Trinidad, you know, for example, that there are some very clear dividing lines about where animals can be. It's a bit more, you know, it's not in every situation, but in general, you know, I think about my brother bringing home one Christmas, a little dog that I think was, he had planned to be a gift for my parents. And they were like, what is that dog doing in this house? And they live in Ottawa and it was Christmas. So it was freezing. Um, and, you know, it's a little tiny dog. It was a toy Maltese and, you know, and they were, but it was not unusual because a dog's place is not inside the house in a lot of the Caribbean. I mean, that's changed. It's never been everyone, but you know, um, there's this, there's this great anxiety about which space the human resides in, which space is reserved for the animals. There's a lot, a lot of injury from the very violent history of, uh, racialized animalization that has, always put black and brown peoples in the space of proving their humanity. So, you know, it's hard. I mean, I, I think like an easy response to that moment, say with my parents of like, what is that animal doing here? You know, are a lot of like, um, a lot of it is about hygiene too. Like, you know, I, I was with a Caribbean friend the other day and she was telling me that 
uh, a story about being horrified that in Montreal, people bring their dog to the restaurant and this dirty animal is there. So there's a lot of that about, I mean, anyone from the Caribbean, I am extremely neurotic about hygiene and we don't, and that is a very Caribbean phenomenon. But these are phenomena that phenomena that are rooted in colonial history and especially about the dividing line. Because for centuries, uh, we have been put in the position of having to prove our humanity. And there's something about the proximity to animals and animality that then becomes difficult. So when we think about that moment with like, oh, that dog is dirty. Um, is that, you know, and, you know, dogs are often as dirty as people or even thinking about like, how can you think about the value of an animal as you would the value of a human being? Well, we have this history where there are all these ledgers that show, you know, sometimes the prices of animals was more than of people, you know, during the slave trade, like there are these like really you know, depressing and powerful ledgers from plantations, which show like a market price for a person, a human person. So this is a, a deep, deep scar. But I think, you know, one of the things that we have to remember in this moment is like the animal has actually done nothing in this. The animal is neutral on this. It is colonizers and then various iteration of kind of colonial actions that have put us in this place. So when I think about the, you know, race comes to mind, but it's also class, right? Like Keisha, I'm sure you heard growing up in Trinidad, uh, you know, it's don't, like, I mean, I remember in school, like don't behave like an animal or look at those, what do you expect from them? You know, the animals, you know, and these are, these are slightly coded expressions of racism, not even not very coded, but, you know, and sometimes, you know, sometimes like they're coded in, about race. Sometimes it's about, you know, it's about gender. Like a lot of the kind of anxieties about women's sexualities are often expressed. Like that is animalistic behavior. If a woman is seen as, you know, loose. Um, and then with sexual, so there are all these, really powerful ways in which those anxieties continue to shape and structure our societies. Um, and, you know, in some ways, the whole book is a riff on that exchange with the African-American feminist artist, Lorraine O'Grady, who she's sort of the anchor for the book. So this is, I guess this is now 12, maybe 11 years ago, Lorraine and I had this long conversation and she talks about sex being the place in which we are stripped bare of culture in some sense. Like we are driven. It's not that culture goes entirely our way, but isn't the space of sex that we are driven by a desire. And of course, she doesn't mean every sexual exchange because some are just, you know, sort of habitual <laughs> practice and maybe not passion exchanges. But her point is for all the work we put into proving we are not human, I'm sorry, not animals, but human, when we are in the space of sex, we are without clothes, we are driven by this desire instinct, and we are forced to contend with it. And so that's, so that's also why I think in thinking about the, the nexus of race, class, and gender in relationship to animality, sex is the key as well. You know, we know from all of this intersectional 
work that these are these are imbricated relationships we can't divorce one from the other it's not possible to talk about gender without race and vice versa and i think animality through this kind of framework of animality we're able to see those connections very oh, clearly thanks for sharing that and again when you talk about the spaces yes you would never bring like the pets the animals the dogs and the home again this obsession with cleanliness and of course when you talk about gender and you talk mm-hmm. about the animal that those coded ways of speaking and language I, I remember you know constantly you would hear someone saying if a woman is acting extremely sexual you're acting like a dog in heat you know you have all of these you know the, the language is so much a part of that human animal divide as you pointed out so yes I agree uh wholeheartedly with that um also, you write about having grown up in um, a nurturing in the Trinidadian community and your family's migration to Canada. So how have your experiences in Trinidad and Canada shaped your artistic practice? And I'm thinking about when you talked about being at Presentation College and your, you know, father, I think his father, Harry. Yeah. Larry. Father, Larry. 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 Yeah. yeah. I mean, not his real name anyway, in the book, Larry. But um, Father Larry telling you to prove, you know, you have to, he's saying to, you know, prove you're not homosexual and that sort of thing. And it's, um, you had so many experiences that you shared about being in Presentation College and that, of that, those experiences with a punga, am I pronouncing it right? I would like yes, to hear. Yes, yes. Have you never, have you heard that word growing up? I wonder I if it's not. still around. Did you ever hear that? Because it was okay. all around, you know. And in fact, it's used in Jamaica as well, um, in other parts okay. of the Caribbean. Like other Caribbean people, rec- I don't know if Fatima, you, you've ever heard that word before. No. No, Senegal definitely does not use that word. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, in fact, I assumed, I assumed because when punga came up, so punga is a word that mean references anal sex. And in the jokes I heard and the games that were played, you know, Africa always featured. So I always assumed that this word had origins in an African language. But the best relationship I could find, this is by a Jamaican linguist, that he felt that it actually had Punjabi roots. That was the closest. Um, But, you know, it's such a mix in the Caribbean that... you never know where these roots come from. Bushbury, like I didn't, I thought it had some Indo, some some connection there. So that's what I thought. But that's interesting. Yeah. Yes. So how, tell us more yeah. about these experiences and how they shaped your artistic. Yeah, I mean, I really hoped I strive to paint a complex picture of Trinidad. You know, I I really both in my writing and especially in my artwork, I really try to resist. Um, flattened tropes about our lives, whether it's a narrative about suffering or a narrative it's about heroism, because you know we are complex people, and that's that's still this this sort of struggle for for many of us is to be recognized as complex subjects. So what I hope that I will I could do in the book is paint a picture in some ways of an ordinary life that I could dwell on these moments. So you mentioned the moment with Father Larry, which begins the book, which, you know, I am 13 years old and not very street savvy. I was book smart, but kind of street stupid. So, you know, I'm 13 years old and I still don't, you know, and he points to a group of us and said, and says, prove to me that you're not homosexual. And 
I, at, you know, this is my second year at this very prestigious school. And to get there, you know, I used to, I'm from a little village. I used to travel over an hour each way to get there. This was a school that was mostly, um, you know, this is, this is not the biggest city in Trinidad, but the second one. So sort of like, um, you know, kind of for the local population elite. So these were boys that lived around, had much more kind of access to different kinds of culture, um, contemporary culture. And so for me, when he said that, my biggest panic was like, oh, gosh, I'm here because, you know, I could always feel confident about being smart. I could always beat them at school. So that's where I drew my security from. And so my panic in this moment was not about morality or like even knowing what that, it was the fact that I felt like, oh gosh, I'm going to be revealed as stupid. Like, cause I don't know what he means. And so in that moment, not only, so here he is, and it's not even about homosexuality really in that moment. He has this long thing about how, the objective of for you young men is not to prove what you're not, but what you are. But it's clear he's getting a kick out of this exchange. You know, there's a reason you don't have to choose homosexuality to explain to children, you know, be yourselves or be confident in being you. But it's clear in the exchange and especially looking back that he's getting a kick out of this. And but what happens in that moment is like in his warning and his condemnation of homosexuality, he's in the same moment introducing the idea to people like me, you know, and he's still creating this kind of tension that makes it salacious and inviting. So that's the kind of complexity in that moment. I mean, we hear so much about the Caribbean is always constituted as a homophobic space. You know, it's all, you know, I would say the same for the global South, but especially black people um, you know, it's always, and I, you know, this would come up in class, for instance, I would often have students who say, oh, you know, I'm from Jamaica, or actually I would, I remember a student, um, maybe not from Senegal, but a student from Somalia said, oh, our people are homophobic. And I would ask the students, so where is this country in the world where children are born and they're being encouraged to be gay? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like all, all kind of contemporary cultures have, a kind of investment in heteronormativity. But there's something very racist at work in producing black culture, Caribbean culture, it's homophobic. And so that's what I wanted them to impact. I want them to see the complexity that that is happening as a kind of racialized trope where it's flipped. In the colonial era, it was all about you know, colonizers encountering less rigid forms of sexual relationships and family relationships and, you know, being repressed and coming from more repressed societies, writing about this as proof of the animality of Africans, of Indians, of indigenous peoples. Um, and now it's flipped. Now that homosexuality has been normalized in Western cultures, they're still barbaric in the South, but they're barbaric because they're homophobic. So they used to be barbaric because they were gay or not exactly gay, but they weren't, as, you know, ascribing to exactly the specific forms of the sort of heteronormative nuclear family structure. And now because, um, now because homosexuality has been sang has been legalized in so much in most Western countries, it's the, it's again, you know, the, the global South homophobes that are barbaric. It's always comes down. That's why the animality question becomes so important. Like even as those things change, 
What hasn't changed is how animalization works as a form of racialized injury. It is always about situating uh, the black brown body as less than human. I probably deviated the question. There. <laughs> oh yes, independent audience. Sorry, uh, you asked. Let me because you know um, it's really interesting because I was very you know I wanted I wanted to talk about Indo Caribbean lives in Trinidad, in Guadeloupe, in Guyana, in a way that first made clear that this is part of Caribbean life. Like I didn't have anything specific to share about. This is what this is the Indianness of Indo-Caribbean people. Um, so that's why you know there's no chapter that says Indo-Caribbean anything. The book it's not in the book title. But I did want to draw from these cases because I wanted to situate that part of the history as enmeshed in the production of Caribbean life. And so some of those stories, you know, you know, because there's so much um, work in representing the Caribbean. And Caribbean peoples, as whether it's you know homophobic or you know sort of backward in thinking about gender, and so there's all this work in in flattening the experience. I sometimes wanted to point to those experiences in which actually this is a liberatory space too. When I think about you know, I remember go, I had an art project where um, my assistant, who was a a gay white Canadian student at the time. And he was in, you know, cataloging some of these photographs. And in a lot of these photographs, I'm in all kinds of like, I'm posing in like, and like a very, like a, you know, Richard Fung, the Trinidadian scholar filmmaker, when he saw them, he's like, oh my gosh, I've never seen such gay pictures for a child because I, you know, I'd be posing with like sunglasses and model posing and like, um, one of my favorite childhood toys was a Miss Piggy doll, and we used to go on picnics. And you know, and I often was told as a young boy, um, "Oh, you're pretty. You could be a girl." And I would say thanks. Like there was not an anxiety around gender. And most of what we hear from the Caribbean is about the deep investment in masculinity, and that is true, but it's not the whole truth. And so I wanted to share my own experience. Of, I cannot think of a single moment in which my gender behavior was corrected. Like you're not being a boy enough. So I wanted to bring forward that. And I think there is something about Trinidad that the, that the, the gender becomes more loosely held because of the multicultural makeup of, you know, Trinidad and also Guyana. There's something about, um, like, let's say in, in some of the other Caribbean islands, which in which like the Indo-Caribbean population, for instance, is smaller or not as visible, we often defer to uh, like a, a, a particular tropes about black masculinity as being dominant. It's easy to, easier to see and to name that, and particularly in relationship to like histories of African American masculinity. You know what it you know what it means to produce black masculinity. But then you have these troublesome Indo-Caribbean men that are not you know, expressing masculinity in the same way. So what it does, it opens up a space in which for like, you know, a, like, I mean, I think a lot of, like I, I, I recognize like there's a kind of more, a higher pitch sing song voice 
to a lot of people like me who grew up in the countryside in Trinidad. Like sometimes I will go back and hear it even more than, you know, than before. And I think like, and that doesn't connote like a lack of masculinity in the way it might in another context. So there's something about the Creole space of the Caribbean that I think also opens up these opportunities for us to constantly renegotiate dominant tropes. And I hope that's what I wanted to bring is to, to, to not say like, hey, look, I grew up without the pressure, this kind of pressure to be a boy in a certain way. And great, I was liberated. Because I also talk about some of the, you know, also like mimicking my aunts way, in ways that were like detrimental to myself. So it's, it's not a story of, you know, but it's not a story just of like, it's not, it's not showing like there's just one thing that happens there, that there's just not one way of being, that there are multiple ways of being and yeah, they're exactly. always shifting. It's not monolithic. And I think people will be surprised by that multicultural nature of Trinidad. And again, you know, growing up in areas like Shaguana, so San Fernando or Tableland, where you, you, you see this sort of yeah. transgressive nature where it's, you can transgress these spaces a lot more, a lot easier, I would say. So, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah. No, I'm glad you brought that up because I think, you know, most academics tend to come from the, you know, particularly like, let's say if we're talking about the Caribbean, come from the cities, come from uh, more metropolitan cultures. And we kind of sometimes don't look and take uh, uh, notice what's happening in the countryside, like further away from power. There's a Trinidadian artist named Chris Cozier, probably one of the best known contemporary Trinidadian artists. And I mention his project in the book because when he talks about growing up, it's always about, you know, sort of like he talks about not being able to take any food, but white, um, white bread sandwiches with cheese in the middle because anything else would seem too ethnic, would be proof of his lack of civility. You would be ashamed to eat it. Um, there's another artist I work with a lot, Wendy Nanan, she's 67 and she talks about, you know, she grew up, you know, she's Indian, one of the few Indian families in Port of Spain at that time, because most were in the countryside. And she says, oh, you know, her mother did not allow them to eat rotis, for instance, like they, she had to pack these draw what she called dry, tasteless sandwiches. And that's all those what it could be seen with. And so in the city, there is, people forget that in the city and closer to power, there's also more surveillance. So of course there, you know, Chris Cozier talks about, he's always trying to, in this kind of early post-independence period, always like emulate colonial practices, always try to aspire to, you know, to prove that you can fit in this this uh, this mold, but in the countryside, <laughs> you know, no one's watching. All kinds of things are happening, and I think, you know, there's a lot of things that we have not noticed that give rise to the kind of vibrancy of the cultures um, of the Caribbean now that come from yeah, those definitely. spaces. A lot of the kind of like, 
rebellious yes. potential. I'm proud to say I grew up in Chibonis and I, I definitely feel that was a space where I was liberated as well. Uh, so my next question in chapter two, clothes makes the man. You write about dress code, that it functions by civilizing the formerly colonized, colonized subjects into humans and also invoking the divisions of class, effectively finding the poor as more animal, less human. Can you discuss the role of clothing in the human-animal divide? Yeah. Well, I mean, the very first and most basic thing is that we are the only animals that wear clothing. <laughs> you know, I mean, what often the the thing we often turn to in talking about what makes humans special kind of animals is our intelligence. But, even, you know, that can be challenged because you look around the world and the kinds of directions we lead in and we're like, and all the kind of self-destructive behavior thing, like, are we that smart, really? But when it comes to clothes, there's really, you know, we are the only animals that have created this ritual in which we must cover up most of ourselves. And there is a lot, and clothes then become this really important marker of gender, of sexuality, of class, of race. Like it, you know, it's, it, 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 it tends in the ways that the body can't often sign, like clothes do the work of situating us uh, in a certain kind of subjectivity. And as I speak, what I'm thinking of is, uh, um, is the example of when I, when I first uh, started working as a professor, I remember, you know, I talk in the book about if you grow up without things and you grow up working class, you learn to dress up in, you know, to give you a certain kind of ability to navigate spaces in which you should not belong. And I remember uh, going to a reception for this retiring professor. And I'd been there a few years, I guess this was early, but not immediately after I joined. And I used to, you know, I love clothes. Um, I've loved clothes since I was a little kid. I was always putting out together little outfits, um, matching outfits as like a five-year-old boy. Like <laughs> I still coordinate my clothes quite diligently today. Um, and there's, you know, there's, I'm also thinking about why I was so invested in clothes. But, you know, so I continued to always, you know, I always became interested in fashion. I would dress up at school. Um, and I remember this professor, a white woman, said to me, um, you're always the best dressed here. Um, you're always the best dressed one. But she said it in a way that was meant to be diminishing because serious scholars do not dress up. And, you know, you really see this particularly among, I mean, that has changed somewhat generationally, but there is a way in which I remember also my first student was uh, my first PhD student was a, a um a Jamaican woman who also shared working class roots. And she would always be the best dressed person, you know. She would always put herself together. And for and being in this sort of like leftist social progressive department, that was sort of looked down upon because they did not understand really the habit of like how we relied on clubs or we understood clothes to navigate those spaces. Like it's something if you feel entitled to that space, you don't have to think about. Um, and it was a really, it was a really, 
it was really a way of putting us down all the time because they would say it in a way that meant to say, like, you can't be considered a serious scholar. Keisha and I had a conversation literally was yes. it during the summer. And yes. <laughs> she and I remember because we yeah. both showed up to meet and we were, I think we were meeting for like food and stuff. And we both showed up and we were both dressed. And <laughs> and she was like, she gave me the best. She was like, just one, one tip you should know. Um, some people may not like. <laughs> how we show up dressed, you know? And I was like, what, why? This is how my mother taught me to show up. Even yeah. going to the airport and even yeah. till this day, yeah. I'll hop on a 14 hour flight and my mom will be like, mm, is this, you couldn't put on like a suit jacket? Or I'm like, mother, it's a 14 hour flight. <laughs> like, so the, the concept was you always, always have to, she's like, you just never know. <laughs> I don't know what it is we're waiting for, but yeah. it was just, the fact that she grew up in Trinidad yeah. and I'm like, we had the same experience of no matter what it is, you always show up correct. You always show up looking like your best. There's another colleague too, you know, I remember I asked her, I was like, wait, I go to class and I'm also like teaching, like, how do she like always have the nicest dress shoes, no matter what it is. <laughs> and, you know, and she's also African-American. So you, you pointed that out. Um, mm -hmm. It is how we show up. It is to have like yeah. break that barrier or, but I'm very curious about that psyche on yeah. what clothing does, especially in the space of academia for black and brown people. <laughs> I'm sorry yes. to interrupt you. <laughs> no, I'm, I thank you for sharing that. I, you know, it's, because I'm, you know, I, I maybe an optimistic part of me hope that has has changed. You know, I like thinking of like your generation thinking like, you know, this has probably changed by now. Um, but I remember, you know, and I think about your mother telling you, you know, to to show up well. It's also about giving you armor to navigate the world. You know, one of the women who's mentioned the book, she's oh gosh, she's just turned ninety two. And she told me this wonderful story about and when she was younger in Trinidad, one of the things her mother would say when her mother was known as a kind of local advocate for things, like she was a nurse, but when people had problems and she, they needed to like go to city hall or deal with things, they would often call on her. And one of the things her mother would say uh, <laughs> as an expression about how to deal with city hall mm -hmm. is like, oh, like you want me to put my clothes on? Like she had special clothes for when she had to take on City Hall. And that had, you know, because we have learned. So clothes in that sense operates as a way like, you know, these elders know that we're not going to be taken seriously without each sufficient armor. They know the onus is always on to prove more, to do more, to have more. So I think in that context, that's where we have come to rely on clothing as a way to kind of assert an authority um, uh, just to be present. You know, I am sure my, like, I, you know, I used to joke that in one classroom evaluations, I don't think I've taught a year without one comment on clothing. Like what I was wearing, there was always some comment. And I'm glad about that, <laughs> you know, because I like clothes. But, you know, for a lot of colleagues, and I, I mean, I really saw this with my student because, of course, around clothing, um, 
the anxieties, the disciplining is always much, much more on women's bodies. So I really saw it with my doctoral student, the way in which um, the way the fact that she wore makeup to class or that her hair was always perfect or, you know, she always dressed up like she was just doing her best. You know, she was just coming, you know, showing up well. Um, but for them, it was sort of like evidence of like, well, it's not serious. Um, it's not. And, you know, it's again, it's a way it's about no matter what you do, there is always this way in which whiteness reassures itself by finding something to be less you know there's always a way and it is around again you know placing people along the spectrum of human to animal and placing one closer uh placing you know oneself if one's white closer to humans and you know in the image of european man as winter would say and then everyone else can never can never fit that but frankly not even a european man can fit that <laughs> like um you know richard dyer's work on whiteness has shown that uh like white people can never be white enough and often the insecurities that they have put among themselves then become the way in which they secure it is by through the exercise of diminishing everyone else you know like the i mean james baldwin has had this wonderful line that i can't quite really recall but it was something the effect of like we are going to pay for all the insecurities that white people have about themselves you know and that is you know, it's sort of like homophobia is the easiest way. Who cares about homophobia? Who cares about other people having sex unless it's something that's you know, deeply, deeply something you're anxious about, about yourself. Okay. Otherwise, you don't care. Yeah. You know? So it's always those insecurities about masculinity, about, home, you know, one's sexuality that produces violence against others. Um, I feel like I'm like, did he was he there, Keisha, when we were speaking? Was he in the yes. next booth? <laughs> yes. That's what I'm <laughs> oh, I'm glad to hear it resonates. Uh, but I'm kind of sad that it's not in the past oh. yet. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also creativity, right? It's not that other folks are dressing up, but they're kind of doing it in a very normative way. Like it's also about our creativity, the ways in which like, whether it's through hair, nails, I mean, not, I mean, fashion extends to beyond clothes. In fact, it's all the other trimmings too. And I think, you know, there's something about the insecurity around the creativity, like, you know, Black culture has produced so much in the Americas. I think there's a kind of insecurity when black creativity is visible <laughs> to folks and you know you're showing up you know looking decked off or like it you know is probably one of the things that's causing anxiety it's like oh i can't yeah. be creative like that and there's something freeing about it and so i you know i've spoken a lot about i was i grew up in abu dhabi in the middle east and of course i was never you know fail to remind it that you are still senegalese by all means necessary <laughs> and every time i would go back to senegal you know everybody was dressed nicely properly you know there there it was never an excuse i never heard oh we're a third world country we never and until this day you know i mean hair laid 
you know, material yeah. nicely stiff, like the, the boo-boo yeah. that you wear, it's the design, beautiful. Yeah. They show up and they show up proud in the colors. The colors are so yeah. beautiful. And at no point has ever, has anyone said, um, well, you know, Senegal's GDP. No, they show up, they yeah. eat, they, yeah. they dress well. <laughs> they may yeah. share the clothes if they have to. They, so it's, it's just amazing that what clothes can do and it's freeing. And yeah. I remember reading, when I read The Burden of Proof, I kind of stuck on those three words for a long time. Mm -hmm. The first time I ever heard burden of proof was in the context of religion. If mm -hmm. you do believe in God or if you don't, the burden of proof lies on the person <laughs> who does for them to prove that God exists. Mm -hmm. And so I was, you know, reading your book and the argument, I was like, so the burden of proof, when it comes to sexuality, that's it's interesting, this human, uh, this nexus of human animal divide, but can you talk to us about how this burden of proof to show how one is human and not animal, which is crazy because we are still animal, but we're trying to not be. <laughs> um, yes. But it's more specifically how this act of refusing to prove something is really freeing. And this you're refusing to follow this normative. But And it reminds me of, I guess, Zora Neale Hurston, um, but yes, what, what do you think about that, this act of yeah. refusal to prove? Yeah. I'm, I'm really encouraged to hear that, 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 that idea and that expression stuck with you, because for me, that is the core concern in the book. It's, it's not so much of figuring out who is animal, like what's less important than figuring out what's the line or who's really the animal is, in fact, it's, it's the measure. It's that that in fact, what we have had for at least 500 years is we've had a scenario in which non-white peoples to varying degrees have been had to prove their humanity over and over and over again. So, and this takes very banal forms and very clear institutionally violent forms. So sometimes, you know, you look at the experience of indigenous people in the Americas, you know, not speaking the language. I mean, one of the things thinking about the Caribbean is the fact that I don't speak anything but English and French. Like, where did Hindi go? It, it was lost in a generation between my grandparents and my parents. And it was in fact because speaking Hindi was a sign of like a lack of culture, a lack of civility. So there's these violent institutional ways in when proving the humanity means, well, I have to give up my language and I don't have to speak English like the other humans. And, you know, that is about the, like, the kind of violent evisceration of culture. And, of course, you know, literally in, you know, the genocide of indigenous and other peoples. Um, so we have this very long history that begins with always uh, not only justifying violence based on the placement of some people as less human than other, less human, more animal than others, but then we continue those measures today by always putting the onus on each other, like particularly uh, through nationalist sources, like today is the 60th anniversary of Trinidad's independence. And one of the things I'm concerned about with the book is how even in national discourses, what we do is reiterate the same kinds of colonial doctrines that would punish ourselves. Um, one of the things I talk about in the book is dress codes. 
you know, not dress code all of the way. Um, I have all these signs from Jamaica and Trinidad that have a litany, a long list of things that men and women have to wear to access government services. Now, why should this be? <laughs> like, why would a Trinidadian or a Jamaican need to prove to dress up in a certain way in order to access social services? Um, and they're not just... They're not just basic, they're so defined. Like there is one, I think, on the Claude McKay High School that was posted at the Claude McKay High School in Jamaica that had a list of like 30 things on each side. Not this, not this. Um, and I think what that, what that is doing is continuing to place the burden of proof on formerly colonized subjects to prove themselves human. It is both the people enacting these rules because it's like them saying, hey, look, we've inherited that measure. So now we're like you. We are going to make others animal and we're going to make them prove because we're now human. So now we're going to make them prove it. And now everyone has to has to, to abide by this kind of measure and doctrine that's set up in the colonial era that is in fact about punishing us. Like the line of punishment is severe. I mean, if you, you know, I'm, I'm sure both of you, if you have any experience of going through the British school system, you know, it's so punitive to the, it's about proving that you can, you know, you can discipline yourself, you can work very hard. Like there's so much pressure to, to, in order to survive, you have to work really hard. I worked harder as a nine-year-old, 10-year-old preparing for common entrance than I worked on my PhD or that I work as a faculty member. It is insane the amount of pressure that we put upon ourselves to survive as people. <laughs> and, you know, and I think what I hope to do was to expose part of that. The dress code seemed like a, a simple way to do that, but also there was a kind of like reassuring narrative too. Um, my favorite story in the book is talking about uh, this cinematographer, this young woman who was, um, doing video work with me on a project and she, one of the days we had to meet she had to go to two government offices she was wearing a turtleneck skirt that felt slightly above her knees and was told she could not enter either the passport office and i think the other office was the ministry of labor because so dress up to her you know up to her face covered arms covered and you know, the dress fell just slightly above her knees. And they said, well, you know, you know, you can't come in here with that, but hold on. And they pulled a scarf out and said, let me just tie this around your knees. And so what I find beautiful in that moment is that they, everyone knows this is a stupid rule. <laughs> and they have a box of things to help people subvert the rule. That the... the Less <laughs> encouraging thing about that is that the rule is nevertheless held. But, you know, I do love this about Trinidadian culture, like the rules, there's always a sense that the rules are always flexible. And I think that is anti-colonial resistance on one hand, because there's a sense of knowing about the stupidity of some of these regulations. But at the same time, there's not enough to get rid of them. You know, like dress codes at government offices made a recent resurgence that they, they were, it was something that like were not seen in Trinidad for a long time. And they, you know, like I think it was about 10 years ago, they were suddenly back, <laughs> these gigantic signs. 
But what I love about that moment is that like the security guard knows this is a stupid rule. The woman working at the office is like, okay, what we could do here? Okay, just cover your knee with a scarf. (laughs) (laughs) So technically, we have maintained this rule that we all know is stupid. (laughs) You have now allowed, you know, so we have not excluded you. We are treating you um, as not someone less. We know the rule is stupid. But to go further to get rid of the rule requires a kind of consciousness and conscientiousness that I think we're not quite yet willing uh, to, to reach. Um, well, going off of that, um, well, those thoughts there about these rules and codes, especially rules with going to basic like government offices and that sort of thing, and you constantly have to follow the rules. But the rule, it's flexible, as you said. And that flexibility has always... Um, I've been conscious of it. And I, I think sometimes that I can use that flexibility here and I realize, no, I cannot. It's very clear. Yeah. There's something very Trinidadian about it. Right. Like, you know, I don't know. I mean, I lived in France. Well, definitely you cannot negotiate (laughs) rules. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You know, you'd go to a place and it would say, these are the hours and you know, I, someone would be there and they could do what you wanted, but it's like, well, uh, no, monsieur, on a papa. But in Trinidad, you know, there is some, there's a sense of knowingness which about the lack of foundation for many of these regulations that place the burden on us to prove a sense yes, of personhood. Exactly. So just talking about the different social, sociopolitical and cultural contexts in which the human human animal divide persists in the Caribbean, I wanted you to talk a bit more about that. I know you talked about the law. You talked about how, um, you know, in certain Mm -hmm. laws, it's also very clear that distinction. So talking about a culture, the sociopolitical aspect, I think um, it would be great to shed some light on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of Caribbean scholars usually talk about this this issue through a discussion of respect, the politics of respectability, you know, that they, I mean, they're talking about some of the same issues I'm talking about without referencing the human-animal divide. I think the human-animal the divide is at the base of it. I think it's something that's, I think the injury of racialized animalation has been so brutal. It is such a difficult thing to take on. You know, um, in many of the discussions of the book, like that's often the thing I notice with in my engagements with Caribbean scholars. Like when it comes around, they'll say something like, oh, and about that animal thing. I don't know, you know, like because I think I think that speaks to how injurious it's been and it's persisting across the board. I mean, the dress code is a banal one. The, de- the police relations is another one, like the way in which police police. We see, you know, we are thanks to the Black Lives um, Black Lives Matter movement. We are much more aware of the ways in which that 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 happens here. Similarly, with the caging of kids at the borders in North, you know, in the United States, like we see very clearly how people are treated by the police force by migration as less than people as animals. And that is also true in the Caribbean. Like you see how people in, with authority speak down to others. Um, I, I am grateful for getting to grow up in Trinidad because sometimes when I go to, I remember my shock at going, going to Barbados and seeing like, you know, young 
white agents talking to older black agents in this way i was like why is she not slapping you like you know in this way that it was so disrespectful that it was normal in that society there is a way in which it is so thorough um in anti-sodomy law in talking about like um women's sexuality and why they have to be controlled and reined in um the clothes that women wear much more than male bodies like women face this much more like i i got a lot more freedom to do you know you you notice the violence is executed against men around water mostly when they look feminine like it's still about femininity like it's about violence against trans women for example it's this, it's about always policing femininity um and the body so that's one of the ways because it's like oh no if if she's not contained this woman might act like an animal her desires might be so much it's about this fear of excess of desires and what is more colonial than that because that is sort of the basis of the colonial project is to rein in these people who have to be civilized out of their excesses and particularly around desires but you see it in policing you see it in education you see it one of the things that i'm glad has changed is around corporal punishment in schools like you know i was a very nerdy good boy overly good boy and so i wasn't i didn't really experience that but my god i think of the brutality around me of getting whipped for not knowing an answer to something like you might have a test and if you got 14 out of 20 you might get 6 lashes for not getting 20 you know this is ridiculous and it is but you would you know it what is premised on the idea that these folks have to have a have to have an extra effort in order to civilize them they have to be beaten into it and i think in education um in policing um across the board in social services how poor people are treated you know the the way in which we deal with the home with homeless people and i think also a very difficult conversation is one about our relationship to animals because i think i think a lot of the anxieties we have about proximity to animals is rooted in this these centuries of racialized animalization that we've had to navigate and so when what i have you know animal rights i work in environmental studies so i know a lot of folks who work for example in animal rights very dominant by white scholars and often they will reduce a moment to saying like oh what such anti animal behavior like how dare you do that but there's a much longer more complex story to unpack that they don't have to deal with because they haven't been on the loop on the side of injury <laughs> you know they've been the benefactor because of the injury so i think those are there are many many ways in which we have to confront um confront the the, the ways in which that, those anxieties about the line about, between human and non-animal human have shaped our societies yes um i i definitely when i think about how it has shaped the society definitely the caribbean society you still see sit it the residual effects they're still there so i agree with that um my next question is in the conclusion you make an impassioned call for embracing animality you write we are animal so what but can the masses tools dismantle the masses house and also what next so i found this to be quite thought provoking and compelling so i want you to talk a bit about the what next 
Yes, and I, I'm glad you you know raised that cha- that challenging question that that um, that that that, that asks us to say, well, can we? I mean, I think it's a bit different than what Audrey Lord is speaking about because we are not in return. Like racialized animalization has happened for the purpose of reassuring the personhood of colonizers and white people in the Americas. That is what is not being. That is, we're not. We're that's not. We're not using that same tool when we say we are animal, because saying we are animal is not about injuring another. It is about claiming that we will not be measured by this rule that that we cannot we cannot ever succeed with because it will never, you know. Winter has explained to us how the impossibility of mimicking the tenets of your, like one will never be human because human is conceived in in a a culturally specific way that is specifically exclusive, exclusive of us. And we see these attempts, you know, we see it. I mean, one of the things that comes to mind immediately is when say very wealthy black celebrities get into trouble with the law like the punishment is severe like you might think you work and work and achieve a certain kind of escape out of this but you know boy is the punishment extra severe and the kind of almost there's almost kind of a joyousness when these figures fall like you see people doubling down on it in the culture and so i think when we say, when I make that claim, uh, I am animal. I think it's really about refusing to be measured against a colonial definition of humanity. I think I think for me, very personally, because I, as I've said, like this project is also very a very personal one. For me, it's about contending with my own self discipline, like the ways in which maybe those pressures have limited my own adventurousness, you know, my own, uh, the, the, the ways in which like my intuition and instinct may not be as sharp because I have been so tuned to regarding those things as dangerous as things like, you know, going, one of the things that people, um, that I've heard a lot from in the book is people who, you know, who read the section about like, not going to parties in high school, not doing the kinds of like knowing in Oshawa, a very you know, we moved to a very white town in which in my high school, there was one black woman who was graduating <laughs> when I started. And I, I remember when I joined, she said, good luck to you. <laughs> because you know, she had been through it. And, and, you know, I knew I couldn't make a mistake. I knew, like, I mean, I remember, like, not hitting, but, like, bumping a bumper in the parking lot, and, like, the police were at my house the next day. And, the, the like, I heard the story from, like, one other, like, person of color in Oshawa where, like, she'd skip school and the police showed up. You knew that you could not make the same kids, make the same mistakes growing up as white kids did because there would not be many chances. But, you know, that is, exploration is such an important part of growing up. So I am animal is always about me trying to work toward like re-securing that animal instinct against all these self-disciplining measures. And it is also at this moment about thinking about the conditions we live in. You know, we cannot survive (laughs) without other species survival. 
So when the third part, which is underexplored in the book, because it was just like one too much, there was going to be a chapter about animal rights. Um, and I felt like it is one, you know, there's already a link, like we haven't even talked about art and that's, you know, the book is in the visual arts <laughs> catalog for Duke. But I didn't want, I couldn't, adding one more layer, but that's an important layer to me that I will continue to work on. Because what does it mean in this moment to see our, to recognize that connection and the dependence on other species? Like we are not going to survive, other species do not survive. So I think it is not just, it is at one, on one hand about securing our personhood, our autonomy, um, about refusing this kind of like history of colonial violence that continues to be perpetrated today in various forms. And it is also about securing a better future that <laughs> in this moment of global ecological crisis. And then just thinking about art quickly, I am going to have a podcast, do a podcast with a colleague on Bakia. And I thought I would like to put you in conversation with Bakia, just looking at connections there. So that definitely will come up. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, kind of as a way to um, wrap up, what, is something that you want readers to take away from your book? You really did mention a lot. <laughs> so I'm just like, this. it seems like, okay, how do we, but I, re I like the question, of course, Keisha asked in terms of I am animal. I know yeah. what I took away yeah. was, it was a fresh of, a breath of fresh air, excuse me. Um, and I felt free, which was nice, you know, like, like you said, like I am animal. And, but this essence of, um, there's something freeing this, this, I really like this notion of refusing to prove this refusing to, I think also, cause it reminds me of um, the politics of black joy by Lindsay Stewart. I read that book. It's just mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. refusal to um, act yeah. and respond to whatever is coming at you and be like, actually, I don't, I, I don't have yeah. to respond to you. I'm just going to walk the other way. Yeah. Um, but what is it mm -hmm. that you want readers to take away? But also for you, how did finishing this project leave you? Yeah, I mean, there are so many scholars, activists, people who are neither scholars nor activists do to refuse all the time um, and produce joy and produce creativity and refuse, you know, refuse to be cowed into the kind of uh, injurious past that we've had. And of course, very difficult to escape because the world, the way in which you navigate this world still requires constant compromise um, of our autonomy and of our beings. But I think that aspiration, I, I hope, I mean, I, the first thing is I hope people see the complexity of Caribbean culture. I, I hope that people, I mean, and in recognizing that complexity, it's it, it's it's in a way reassuring and providing confidence. Like we don't have to prove anything, <laughs> you know. You know, I mean, I I hope exactly what you said is what some people feel is a a freeness to not feel like we have to abide by certain things. And I hope that it it produces a more social conversation about it that might lead to institutional change because there's a long way, you know, those signs have to go down about dress codes. Um, 
the the ways in which like the over punish the over punitive measures taken against children around behavior especially black children like those have to go you know there are lots of lots of social measures that have to be taken and for me i you know i want to continue to work on this um as we speak i'm in st catharines ontario i'm putting up an art show called nature's wild duets and one of the reasons that I've been so drawn to art is because it's a space in which we see the subconscious come forward in a way that we often do not see in the social sciences or even the humanities in, as scholars. Like we're always, what is our thesis? What are the things that our conscious is producing? And I think what was exciting for me about art is the way in which it tapped into our subconscious knowledge, which has a wisdom of its own and, you know, has this very strong survivalist instinct. And so a lot of the, the work that follows the book will be through art and through engagement with the artist. Um, and one of the events, uh, the main event that goes along with this exhibition, for example, is a conversation with a leading animal rights activist because I want to get into those issues more clearly. There's an urgency about the environmental conditions we're facing. I mean, Trinidad is one of the worst, I think it's, is it number one of the worst, worst polluters per capita in the world? Because it's a small population yes. with a lot of oil and a lot of bad oil refinery systems. So, you know, it's not exactly that each Trinidadian is a terribly producing, it's more about the overall but it's something to confront because, you know, and it seems so strange because I land in Trinidad and you're just struck by how wonderfully green the main city is. And it seems weird to think that this highly forested country is also simultaneously like engaging in so many environmentally destructive behaviors. Um, so I think, you know, I want us to confront those harsh questions. I think a really difficult one will be around thinking about our anxieties about animality like will the can the dog come inside family the fights right? that <laughs> <laughs> like that is not a starting point for many people <laughs> no 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 mm -hmm. but we have to look at <laughs> yeah. but it's going to be about like why 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 are we so anxious about it why are we so anxious about hygiene what is it that we have so taken in that have conditioned us to, to, to create distance between not just other animals, but through that also our own animality. Are we supposed to be afraid of who we are? Thanks so much for that, and I think there is so much of an appeal and a reimagining of animality and a reappropriation to adapting, revising, or appropriating as well of this, this notion of animality. And there's certainly an appeal to it, which I think it's, I see it as unbridled freedom, free expression of desire, and nothing, and you should not be ashamed of that desire that is so often the source of shame in the language. Well, in the, in thank the you so much for joining us, Dr. Gosain. So and um, we're looking forward mm -hmm. to um, what's next. Well, let, let's, you know, anything else you're working on? Also, if you're not, that's completely We'd love to have you. <laughs> well, there will be a follow-up book um, that's probably a couple of years away um, that in which I really... <laughs> so 
but I had such a great time. It was really, thank you for your wonderful questions and your deep engagement with the text. I really appreciate it. And I've learned so much too. I'm, I, you know, I'm really struck by uh, your readings and your stories. Thank you. no, thanks so thank for sharing. You. I mean, it brought me back to Trinidad. It's always good to share these stories about what I'm so passionate about mm-hmm. my home and I'm sure you feel the same. So I enjoyed reading reading. Yeah. Well, the, the, the much delayed book event is, will be in Trinidad oh, October 13th. So I'm looking forward to what kind of conversation will happen there. Son of the soil presentation called. <laughs> By the way, he is being very modest and humble, but that's like the top boys school. If one of the top, if not the top. Yeah. Oh, I know. I work harder to get into that school at nine and ten than I have ever worked. Commonwealth? No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, that was hard work. And that was very painful to leave. Like it was a very painful decision by my parents for me to be plucked out of that. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I hope I see you in class.